Well, please turn with me in our Bibles this evening to Leviticus chapter 16, and you'll find this on page 95. You'll remember that uh, in the previous section in Leviticus 11 through 15, we were looking at the purity codes, and uh, we were highlighting that uh, even in Leviticus 12, which was talking about um, uncleanness uh, as a result of bodily discharges, is a principle that was picked up again in Leviticus chapter 15. And so the principle uh, that was being taught is shared between those two chapters. And so we were trying to look at them uh, as a unit uh, last uh, a couple of times ago. But this evening, we're turning to Leviticus chapter 16 uh, and looking at the Day of Atonement. You'll find this on page 95 in the Church Bibles. This is God's word. The Lord spoke to Moses after the death of the two sons of Aaron, when they drew near before the Lord and died. And the Lord said to Moses, Tell Aaron your brother not to come at any time into the holy place inside the veil, before the mercy seat that is on the ark, so that he may not die. For I will appear in the cloud over the mercy seat. But in this way Aaron shall come into the holy place, with a bull from the herd for a sin offering, and a ram for a burnt offering. He shall put on the holy linen coat, and shall have the linen undergarment on his body. And he shall tie the linen sash around his waist, and wear the linen turban. These are the holy garments. He shall bathe his body in water, and then put them on. And he shall take from the congregation of the people of Israel two male goats for a sin offering, and one ram for a burnt offering. Aaron shall take the bull as a sin offering for himself, and shall make atonement for himself and for his house. Then he shall take the two goats, and set them before the Lord at the entrance of the tent of meeting. And Aaron shall cast lots over the two goats, one lot for the Lord, and the other lot for Azazel. And Aaron shall present the goat on which the lot fell for the Lord, and use it as a sin offering. But the goat on which the lot fell for Azazel shall be presented alive before the Lord to make atonement over it, that it may be sent away into the wilderness to Azazel. Aaron shall present the bull as a sin offering for himself, and shall make atonement for himself and for his house. He shall kill the bull as a sin offering for himself, and he shall take a censer full of coals of fire from the altar before the Lord, and two handfuls of sweet incense beaten small, and he shall bring it inside the veil, and put the incense on the fire before the Lord, that the cloud of the incense may cover the mercy seat that is over the testimony, so that he does not die. And he shall take some of the blood of the bull and sprinkle it with his finger on the front of the mercy seat on the east side. And in front of the mercy seat he shall sprinkle some of the blood with his finger seven times. Then he shall kill the goat of the sin offering that is for the people and bring, it, bring its blood inside the veil and do with its blood as he did with the blood of the bull, sprinkling it over the mercy seat and in front of the mercy seat. 
Thus he shall make atonement for the holy place because of the uncleannesses of the people of Israel and because of their transgressions, all their sins. And so he shall do for the tent of meeting, which dwells with them in the midst of their uncleannesses. No one may be in the tent of meeting from the time he enters to make atonement in the holy place until he comes out and has made atonement for himself and for his house and for all the assembly of Israel. Then he shall go out to the altar that is before the Lord and make atonement for it and shall take some of the blood and of the bull and some of the blood of the goat and put it on the horns of the altar all around. And he shall sprinkle some of the blood on it with his fingers seven times and cleanse it and consecrate it from the uncleannesses of the people of Israel. And when he has made an end of atoning for the holy place and the tent of meeting and the altar, he shall present the live goat and Aaron shall lay both his hands on the head of the live goat and confess over it all the iniquities of the people of Israel and all their transgressions all their sins and he shall put them on the head of the goat and send it away into the wilderness by the hand of a man who is in readiness the goat shall bear all their iniquities on itself to a remote area and he shall let the goat go free in the wilderness then Aaron shall come into the tent of meeting and shall take off the linen garments that he put on when he went into the holy place and shall leave them there And he shall bathe his body in water in a holy place and put on his garments and come out and offer his burnt offering and the burnt offering of the people and make atonement for himself and for the people. And the fat of the sin offering he shall burn on the altar. And he who lets the goat go to Azazel shall wash his clothes and bathe his body in water. And afterward he may come into the camp. And the bull for the sin offering and the goat for the sin offering, whose blood was brought in to make atonement in the holy place, shall be carried outside the camp. Their skin and their flesh and their dung shall be burned up with fire. And he who burns them shall wash his clothes and bathe his body in water. And afterward he may come into the camp. And it shall be a statute uh, to you forever that in the seventh month, on the tenth day of the month, you shall afflict yourselves and shall do no work, either the native or the stranger who sojourns among you. For on this day shall atonement be made for you to cleanse you. You shall be clean before the Lord from all your sins. It is a Sabbath of solemn rest to you and you shall afflict yourselves. It is a statute forever. And the priest who is anointed and consecrated as priest in his father's place shall make atonement, wearing the holy linen garments. And he shall make atonement for the holy sanctuary. And he shall make atonement for the tent of meeting and for the altar. And he shall make atonement for the priests and for all the people of the assembly. And this shall be a statute forever for you, that atonement may be made for the people of Israel once in the year, because of all their sins. And Aaron did as the Lord had commanded Moses. Ceremonies are part of our life. Um, We go through ceremonies all the time. Uh, There may be a ceremony when someone graduates. It communicates that they have accomplished their studies. 
that they have completed uh, their, their studies. You may think of the ceremonies involved in a wedding. Uh, people will come together and there is a recognition that something is happening. Uh, a man and a woman are now binding themselves in a commitment to live together as husband and wife. That ceremony celebrates, but it also communicates something is taking place. You can even think about ceremonies on a small scale. Uh, whenever someone has a birthday, uh, traditionally there is a ceremony that is attached to that. Uh, there will be oftentimes a cake presented uh, with candles. And whenever that cake is presented, uh, there will be a chorus of singing, uh, happy birthday. And it is a way of expressing and communicating uh, the joy of and the gift of someone's life. It is celebrating another person's life as a gift from God. Ceremonies communicate things. When we look at the book of Leviticus, we have been looking at many different ceremonies. And those sacrifices and ceremonies, those rites and rituals, they communicate something. But this evening as we come to uh, Leviticus 16, we are looking at one of the most important ceremonies in the entire Old Testament scriptures. We are looking at something that was central uh, to the life and the worship of the people of God. And we could detail many reasons uh, of how to see the importance of this event. Uh, but a couple of things stand out. One, you'll notice there at the end of the chapter that it calls this day, the Day of Atonement, or sometimes called Yom Kippur. It is a day that is called a day of solemn rest. Literally, in the original language, that means it is a Sabbath of Sabbaths to you. It is a day of rests of rests. In other words, it is going to the higher degree. There are days of rests, and then there are days of rests. And this is a most solemn day. It was a day in the seventh month, on the tenth day of that month, that the people were to celebrate. And we see the importance of this day in that a failure to observe this day meant a person was to be cut off from the community of Israel. And they were now under God's judgment. So serious it was that failing to observe this day, failing to recognize this day for what it is, meant that one had essentially denied the faith and was no longer to be treated as part of God's people. So as we come to look at this event in the Old Covenant uh, system, this was a ceremony, but it was a ceremony that communicated something very solemn. It was at the very heart of what it meant to be part of the people of God. And at the heart of the people of God's worship was the idea of atonement. And so this evening, uh, we want to look at uh, the Day of Atonement. And we want to see that because the Lord has appointed a day to take away all sins, we can be restored in fellowship with God. Leviticus 16, you'll notice it begins by saying, the Lord spoke to Moses after the death of the two sons of Aaron. It's actually picking up from what it had said many chapters before, back in Leviticus 10. You remember the Lord had consecrated the priesthood, that Aaron had established the tabernacle worship, the inaugural worship with the sacrifices. But then shortly after, after fire came from heaven, and accepted Aaron's worship, we're told that Aaron's sons were struck down and killed. And here it begins to amplify 
that whole scenario. You notice there that it says, tell Aaron not to come at any time into the place of the holy place inside the veil before the mercy seat that is on the ark so that he may not die. This may be alluding to the sin of Nadab and Abihu who had presented themselves, not only had presented strange fire or unauthorized fire, but you remember it said that they had presented strange fire before the Lord. And it may have been that Nadab and Abihu came into the holy place without warrant, that they came into the holy place of their own initiative rather than following the Lord's decree. And so the Lord is making it clear that there is a protocol of how he is to be honored. But all of this is, again, highlighting the context. Those intermittent chapters, Leviticus 11 through 15, were really talking about the importance of purity. That when impurity comes in contact with the holy, it brings judgment. That's what happened to Nadab and Abihu. And now here in Leviticus 16, it is picking up on this whole idea of coming before or coming into the presence of this God. But it mentions several things about this ceremony. Uh, We're told about the preparation that was needed and how it is that Aaron is to approach the presence of God. He's not to come at any time he wants, but rather he is to come as the Lord has dictated. And you notice there in verses three and four, it, it explains how he is to come. He is to come with a bull from the herd for a sin offering and a ram for a burnt offering. So he is to come uh, with a sacrifice. But in verse 4, it tells us something else, that he is to uh, put on his holy linen coat, the linen undergarments, the linen sash, and the linen turban. And those are his holy garments. It's important to realize these clothes are not the same decorative Uh, uniform that we read of elsewhere about the high priest. You remember earlier we talked about how the high priest had a uniform that had royal overtones to it. it. It signified that he was the king's representative. He was a servant of the king. And so he had a very exalted or a noble position that was signified in his uniform. Here that high priest takes off those clothes. And instead, he is wearing a much more humble, ordinary uh, garment. He's assuming the posture of a servant. And so he's not in an exalted status, but rather in a very humble position as he is about to carry out his work. He is taking the position uh, expressing humility. But as he goes about uh, to complete this ceremony, uh, we notice that there are three stages to it. And this evening, we want to look about the Day of Atonement in two thoughts. We want to think about the ceremony, and then we want to think about the command that is embedded in it. And we want to spend most of our time just thinking about what the ceremony is all about. And we notice here that there are three phases to it. The Day of Atonement is, in many ways, has parallels, but in other ways, it stands apart from any other day of the year. That there's something distinct that is happening here. And the people are to take notice of it because it is to shape the way that they relate with God. The first phase is a phase of purification. And it tells us that Aaron was to come and to offer the bull as a purification offering, both for himself and for his house. What is of central importance on the Day of Atonement 
is, is that on this day, the high priest, and only the high priest, is going to go into the, the holy place, the most holy place. This is something that is unique about the day. Any other day of the year, the high priest and anyone else cannot go into the very throne room of God. But here, on this one day, the high priest is able to do so. It tells us that he was to take a censer full of coals of fire from the altar before the Lord and two handfuls of sweet incense and to bring it inside the veil. Without that incense, the high priest dies. Without that incense, he will be under God's judgment. But the reason why he takes this fire pan with coals, live coals, and the handfuls of sweet incense is, is that when he comes into the very holy place, he is going to put that incense on the fire pan and then to leave it there. He is then going to leave and go back and to get the blood of the bowl. Then he is going to allow time for the incense that is on the coals to create a cloud. That cloud is then going to fill the room. And that cloud of smoke, which you could see as something uh, reflective uh, or representative even of the Lord's presence, is ultimately serving as a veil. That as he comes into the very throne room, he is going to carry out his work under a veil. As he brings the blood of the bull and sprinkles the mercy seat. He is then uh, uh, purifying uh, the most holy place. He will complete this work not only by sprinkling with his fingers the mercy seat seven times, but he will repeat this action. He will do the same thing at the tent of meeting. And then he will repeat this action, uh, doing sprinkling even the altar of bronze in the courtyard. And so the high priest is purifying the tabernacle. The very meeting place between God and his people is defiled. And it threatens the very bridge that has been formed. And so once a year, there has to be this way of saying all the impurities have been cleansed. That it has been purged of defilement. So that the tabernacle maintains its posture as a meeting place between God and his people. That's the first phase. The high priest goes into the very presence of God. The one time in the entire year that he goes into the most holy place. You remember there are the, the three places or the three sections to the tabernacle. There's the outer courtyard, that open area uh, where the, the bronze altar is and the, the, the basin of water is for washing. Uh, those are out in the outer, uh, outer courtyard. But then you could move further west and you would go into what is known as the tent of meeting or during the te temple era, the holy place. That is where the priests, those who were holy, would serve. But the most holy place was a third section. And this day is the only day when anyone would go in there. And here it tells us that Aaron is not to go in except on this day and only with the blood of sacrifice. So something unique is happening here. He is purifying uh, the defilement of the priesthood, of his household, of the Israelites, of the tabernacle itself. There's a second phase uh, to the Day of Atonement. It tells us uh, all as well uh, about a ceremony that involved two goats uh, that were offered up as a pur uh, purification offering. 
There in verse 8, it tells us that one goat uh, was dedicated for the Lord uh, and would be offered as a, a sin offering in the same manner that the bull was offered. The blood was sprinkled on the mercy seat and then the tent and then the altar. The second goat was said to be for Azazel. Um, that has traditionally been understood as the scapegoat. And that is a, a, a right and a proper way of understanding it. We still talk about a scapegoat in our language today. Maybe you turn on the news and you read about some political scandal that's happening in the government. Uh, something has happened and it, it, it casts a bad shadow on whoever's in power. And so there will be someone who is described as the scapegoat. Uh, they're going to take the hit in order that the government does not fall. Uh, they're going to take the blame for something that they themselves didn't do or that they themselves weren't primarily responsible for. But they're going to take that ownership so that the government is able to carry on. And they're oftentimes called the scapegoat. Uh, they're taking the blame. They're taking the hit for the team in order that the team, the government, is able to carry on in its work. That's the idea here. And it all comes from what is being described here in Leviticus. There is one goat that is offered up and dedicated to the Lord. But there's another goat that is described as Azazel, which can be translated as the scapegoat or the goat that departs. This goat will be sent out into the wilderness. Uh, and Aaron would lay his hands on the head of that live goat. He would confess over it the iniquities of the people, all their transgressions, all their sins. And he shall put them on the head of the goat and send it into the wilderness by the hand of a man who is in readiness. So that the heart of the ceremony, the high priest, is he's confessing the sins of the people. And you notice there in verse 21 that threefold description. He's going to confess the iniquities of the people. He's confessing their transgressions. He's confessing their sins. It's a comprehensive confession. It is, it is describing the sins of the people in their totality. And here the high priest is recognizing our, we are sinful and that we merit the judgment of God. And then he places those sins on the live goat and then drives the goat out into the wilderness away from the presence of God. And that goat goes out into the wilderness to die. The people of Israel are to understand through this ceremony that's what our sins deserve. Our sins warrant the judgment of God. They warrant the banishment from God's presence. They warrant the certain death that that goat is going to get out in the wilderness. That's what our sins deserve. But they were to learn not only that that's what their sins deserved, but they were to learn that through the Day of Atonement, their sins can be removed. And they can be removed as they're carried by another who bears the consequence in their place. What's at the heart of Old Testament worship? It's substitution. It's what we call penal substitution. The idea of the penalty of sin being punished by a substitute who not only removes the condemnation that we deserve, but who removes it by bearing the consequences himself. 
And so the people of God were, were taught that they could be forgiven, but they learned that they would be forgiven as someone else bears the consequences in their place. We sang there from Psalm 103. The Israelites were taught to celebrate as far as the east is from the west, so far our sins have borne away. What were they saying? They were saying on the day of atonement, the scapegoat goes out into the wilderness. He is going westward. Or he is going eastward. He is going away from us. We, have, we, we visibly see our sins going away. We no longer face the consequences of what our sins deserve. Because one has taken them in our place. And so at the heart of this whole ceremony is understanding how. How they can have their sins atoned for. How they can have their sins covered. What does atonement mean? The word itself has the idea of ransom, a payment, and the idea of purification, cleansing. That the covering of sin happens by a payment, and the payment is made to cleanse them from their wrongdoing. That it is satisfied, in other words. And this language carries on throughout the Old Testament scriptures. When you get to Isaiah and Isaiah starts talking about the Messiah, he doesn't talk about the Messiah simply as a political figure. He talks about the Messiah as a suffering servant of the Lord. But he says about the Messiah that he would be cut off from the land of the living. That he would die. But remember what he says in Isaiah 53. He would bear our iniquities. Isaiah was saying that this Messiah that comes, like a scapegoat being driven off into the wilderness, he's removing our sins, but he's removing them because he's carrying them himself. He's going to be cut off, but he's being cut off because he's bearing them. So when the New Testament talks about Jesus' death, the Apostle Peter says that he bore our sins in his body on the tree so that we might die to sin and live unto righteousness. Peter was intentional when he says he bore, he carried them. Just as that scapegoat carried symbolically the sins of the people away into the wilderness. How do I know that my sins have been taken away? Only if a scapegoat has taken them in my place. And what the New Testament is celebrating is, is that there has come one who takes the sins of the world upon himself. And that all who trust in him can know the forgiveness of sins. This is what the Day of Atonement is all about. But there's more going on here at the Day of Atonement. The Day of Atonement is really about two directions. Because on the one hand, you have the scapegoat, that is, the hands laid on him and driven out into the wilderness. He's being driven out into the wilderness far away from God's presence. This is where sin leads. But on the flip side, you have the high priest who's moving in a different direction. The high priest is moving into the very throne room of God. The high priest moves from the courtyard into the holy place, into the most holy place, as he comes with the blood of sacrifice. He is coming into God's presence. Uh, and this is the only day in which this happens. 
As we mentioned, the tabernacle has those three sections, but as you move your way westward, you move from the courtyard into the, the tent of meeting, into the, into the most holy place. You're coming closer and closer into God's presence. Only the high priest could enter this, and only once a year, and only with the blood of sacrifice. But the Day of Atonement taught the people not just that their sins could be removed, but when their sins are removed, the effect of it is that they can come into God's presence. That's what's being pictured by the high priest. The high priest comes into God's presence, even for a moment, even in, a, in, a, in one day, one representative. It shows us that the door was being opened in a representative way. Why is that significant? Because when you step back and you think about the whole theology of Leviticus, we've said that Leviticus is about Eden being restored. When Adam and Eve sinned, they were banished from the Garden of Eden. But do you remember what it says at the end of Genesis 3? That God banished them from the Garden and then placed them out on the east side. And then put a cherubim, preventing them from having access to the Tree of Life and the garden itself. They were, they were removed from the garden on the east side. But now the high priest on the Day of Atonement moves his way westward. He moves beyond the consuming fire of the bronze altar. He moves beyond the purifying waters of the basin. He, he passes through the veil with the curtain, with the, the cherubim embroidered in that curtain, just as the cherubim were over the Garden of Eden. He's passing beyond them. As he moves westward, he is coming to the very throne of God. And there he offers the blood sacrifice. And it's very explicit there in verse 14. He's to sprinkle the mercy seat on the east side. You only come to the mercy seat as you come moving from the east to the west. The Day of Atonement, what is it all about? It's about returning to Eden. The people aren't to forget what they've lost in sin, but they're to believe that God is making a way for them to be restored. As far as, our, as the west is from the east, so far God has borne our sins away. To what end? that we might be restored with God. That a God who is holy still finds a way in which to allow his people to have fellowship with him. When Jesus was crucified, Matthew tells us that the veil in the temple was torn from top to bottom. What's the significance of that? It's obviously miraculous. It's happening from top to bottom. It's a thick curtain. But what is the significance of the temple curtain being ripped? It's telling us that Jesus' death was an atoning sacrifice and that it was accepted. And now the way into God's presence has opened up. That the way into God's presence now has been opened up through the Lord Jesus. And that if we are trusting in him, then we can be accepted in God's sight. So the Day of Atonement is unique. It's the only day of the whole year that the high priest goes into the most holy place. 
there's this unique ceremony where there are these two goats. One is dedicated to the Lord and is killed. The other one is a scapegoat that's driven out into the wilderness. But the people confess their sins over it and watch their sins go away. That it is through the sacrifice of a representative that they are able to have their sins atoned for. And then the third phase of it is the regular burnt offering. Again, this threefold manner highlighting uh, the purification being accomplished. And so in all of these ways, the ceremony is a very unique thing. But then secondly, very quickly, there is the command that comes with this. It tells us in verses 19, uh, 29 and following uh, uh, two things about the observance of this command. Uh, this uh, ceremony was celebrated, as mentioned, on the seventh month, on the tenth day of the month. But you notice there, again, that it is a command that they are uh, to observe. Um, it says in verse 29, It shall be a statute to you forever, that in the seventh month, on the tenth day of the month, you shall afflict yourselves, and you shall do no work, either the native or the stranger who sojourns among you. We might wonder then, uh, if this is a statute that is to be forever, uh, should we be trying to celebrate this in the new covenant? But the writer of Hebrews is very explicit. No. And the reason why we shouldn't is because Christ has already fulfilled it. That this was a permanent statute as long as this age carried on. But the age of the sacrifices has been completed now that Christ has fulfilled them. Christ has brought in a new age with a new covenant in his own blood. And so the writer of Hebrews explains that all of these things were pictures that had been fulfilled in Christ. And in Hebrews 9 and 10, he explains why we should look to Christ as a better sacrifice. The Day of Atonement, it happened every year. But it had to be repeatedly offered. It didn't actually accomplish what it pictured. It just reminded the people. And so it was offered many times. But the writer of Hebrews celebrates that when we think about Jesus' sacrifice, it tells us that once for all at the end of the ages, Christ put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. Christ's sacrifice is greater because it only had to be offered once for all time. That Christ's sacrifice is better because the high priest offered up sacrifice, but only he came into the holy place. Whereas Christ's sacrifice makes an opening for all those who belong to him. Again, that's what the veil being rent is all about. Christ's sacrifice is better because the high priest offered up his sacrifice in a shadow, in the earthly tabernacle. But the writer of Hebrews says, Jesus offered up his blood not in the earthly shadows, but he ascended into heaven with his own blood. That he presents his own blood, and on that basis, we can be accepted into God's sight. Jesus came to make a way, a gate, open the gate into God's presence. And so the writer of Hebrews concludes that section by saying, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened up to us through the curtain, that is through his flesh. It is through his life, his death, that we have a great high priest that allows us to draw near to God. So we are to recognize the work of atonement, not by 
instituting this old covenant ceremony, but by recognizing what Christ has done once for all. The second part of this commandment there in verse 29 is not only the statute of remembrance, but it says that on this day you shall do no work, uh, but rather they shall afflict themselves. That word for afflict means to have an inner uh, turmoil or to have uh, rather to be an inner pain that expresses contrition and sorrow. The point is that people were not simply to witness these things happening. They weren't just to watch something and then carry on, but they were to be engaged with what they were seeing happen. This is what our sins deserve. And now they recognize the weight of it. Now they are to hate their sins. They are to appreciate God's grace, recognizing what they can be saved from. But they are to respond to it uh, uh, through conviction and confession of sin. Again, that's what the priest is doing. Confessing the sins, the transgressions, the iniquity of the people. They're not just watching it. They're recognizing that's what my sin deserves. And then they respond accordingly. An important part of the Day of Atonement was conviction and confession, uh, which, uh, as we mentioned, implies uh, a comprehensive confession. It is confession in view, uh, understanding what our sins deserve, to be driven away from God's presence into the realm of chaos and destruction. Only when we recognize what we deserve can we appreciate what Christ's death on the cross achieves. You are not to be a passive observer, though, to God's works. We, too, are called to respond to God's revelation. The people here are commanded to mourn. It tells us in Zechariah's prophecy that when Christ is crucified, they will look on him whom they have pierced, and they will mourn. They will recognize that his death is on account of their responsibility. Likewise, we are to recognize our sins by recognizing what it deserves. That it cost the Son of God his life. And that it's only in him that we can be forgiven. As you think about the Day of Atonement, the people were being taught not to be passive observers, but to be responsive participants. As you hear the gospel week by week, are you a passive observer? Or are you someone has, who has responded in faith? Have you come to confess your sins, to recognize I stand in need of, uh, of God's grace? Because my sins deserve banishment from God's presence. Have you come to recognize that you stand in need of a substitute, but have you also come to believe that there is one in Jesus? Atonement is accomplished through a substitute. What is the Old Testament law all about? I've said it before, but when you think about the books of Moses, the first five books of the Old Testament, oftentimes referred to as the law, at the center of the books of Moses is the book of Leviticus. What is the book of Leviticus all about? 
at the book, the center of Leviticus, is this chapter. It's about atonement. What's the Day of Atonement all about? It's about recognizing that sinners don't receive what they deserve. But God's grace provides a way for them to be restored with God. The Old Testament worship was teaching the people their need, but also about God's provision. We have a sacrifice. We have a substitute in Jesus. If you believe in him, you will be forgiven of your sins. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do pray that as we think about these Old Testament ceremonies, we pray, Lord, that we would not be passive observers, but that we would be people who respond to what they convey, knowing that sin deserves banishment from your presence, but also realizing that the work of the great high priest is one that brings entrance into the very presence of God. Help us, Lord, to realize that Christ's ascension into heaven serves as the guarantee of the acceptance of all those who belong to him. And may we be people who trust in him for the forgiveness of our sins. Go before us in Jesus' name. Amen.